Hey everyone, this podcast is about Luke 19, the parable of the pounds. We're going to consider Matthew 25 a little bit as well, um, but mainly focus on the parable of the pounds because it is one of the more confusing parables when you actually read it and think about what it's saying. Until you look in the context of the time and realize that Jesus was, as always, being incredibly clever with what he said, um, incredibly uh, well thought out. And as a result, this parable provides lots of meanings uh, but particularly you can look at it in two different ways and get two meanings as a result so a little bit of context in this parable is that at the time that jesus was was teaching um the he had built up a following a multitude of people and they kind of wanted to overthrow the roman governor okay or the roman uh, governance of the area prior to this and during his lifetime, the Herodian uh, line had been ruling the Herods. So you had Herod the Great, Herod the First, um, who was given the title of king. And um, he'd gone to Rome to get that title. And he had passed on his kingdom and divided it in his will between three of his sons. OK, now I say three because Antipater or Antipater, son of Doris, um, was killed just five days before Herod's own death. And also Alexander and Aristobulus were strangled to death uh, because Herod, again, was jealous of them or feared them or thought that they might try and usurp his authority or something like that. It was it was pretty messy stuff. Now, there were three other sons, okay? So we have Archelaus um, and another Antipater or Antipater, and they're sons of the Samaritan Malthace. But he also has another son called Philippus, who's the son of, of Cleopatra of Jerusalem. So Cleopatra of Jerusalem is the daughter of the high priest Simon, not to be confused with the Egyptian namesake. Um, so he has these three sons. He gives them his land. Now, Philippus was actually a good Herod of the, uh, the main Herods. Philippus was a good one. And he kind of ruled down south. And Archelaus was a bit of a scumbag, and he had the area that Jesus was in, in Samaria and Judea and Idumea, or where the Edomites were. And interestingly, he didn't have Galilee, but because uh, Antipas or Antipater, he, he gets called that as well, um, gets that area. So he has the area that concerning Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus comes into play here with, with Jericho in this story and whatnot. And he would have, he was the one that was reigning when Jesus was a child. After Herod dies, Herod Archelaus reigns, and he's still a threat to Jesus. So Joseph and Mary, a bit worried, stay in Egypt and come back when it's safe. Anyway, this is all happening before, but it's important to understand that because then we get to Luke 19, and we talk about this king and all these things that are going on and some of the political things. Um, it makes a lot of sense that Jesus is talking about relatively recent events within his own lifetime. So let's just get into it. Let's just read it. Let's talk about what's going on and why that Jesus told this particular story of this particular version or uh, with, with certain additions and certain things different compared to Matthew 25. Now, remember in Luke 19 that Jesus had been speaking to Zacchaeus, who's climbed up the sycamore tree because he couldn't see. And Zacchaeus was a public official, but he was a Jew working for the Romans. That's about as bad as you can get. That makes you a an unclean sinner and 
everybody hated Zacchaeus because he made a lot of money from ripping off his fellow Jews to pay the Romans and give them their taxes. So Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus and he's teaching him about the kingdom of God. And he's talking about um, him being a son of Abraham and saving that which is lost, which links back to other parables. And I think he's trying to set the scene for the idea of, look, don't set yourself on these worldly things. Repent, focus on uh, the things that are good. Of course, the chaos is going to say, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor and I'll pay them back fourfold and all this in verse eight. So then immediately Jesus um, says, I'm, I'm about to go up to Jerusalem. OK, and this is, he's about to go to the last week of his life. He's about to spend time um, with the disciples. We're going to have the Last Supper, the Passover meal. That's important. Um, so Jesus has got all these things in his mind. Now, Jericho is 250 metres below sea level. It's the longest continually inhabited city on Earth. And at the time of Herod Archelaus, the Winter Palace had been rebuilt. OK, Herod had had this palace built. And then it'd been destroyed by a guy called Simon, who, uh, with a band of insurgents, had ransacked the area, gone around destroying and burning palaces. Um, Varus, the Roman uh, general, has to get called in to sort the situation out because Herod couldn't. And 2,000 of these people are crucified to set an example. Okay, But nonetheless, that meant that the Winter Palace was restored by Herod Archelaus. Uh, so in Jericho, this would have been prominent. It would have been opulent and it would have been a sign of power, prestige and money. And bearing in mind that the people at this time were very poor, one to two percent, it's estimated, were the elite that controlled things. There was about 10 percent of the people that may have been doing pretty OK, maybe the merchants. And then the rest were really living in poverty. They were having to pay taxes to the temple. They're having to pay taxes to the Romans. And of course, uh, there were lots of other taxes being given out to to keep the people destitute. There were lots of issues with poverty and indebtedness. Um, so financial issues and concerns were, were, were a serious problem. So that said, Jesus then is talking about going to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, of course, sits in the mountains. It's not just at sea level, but it's above sea level. So compared to Jericho, it represents the holy place. Jericho represents the world. It was a party town. It was the Ibiza of the day. Uh, it was a resort town. And um, so a lot of uh, licentious behavior going on down there, uh, which is why the Good Samaritan, by the way, is such a powerful story, because he's on his way down to the earthly worldly pleasures or down to hell below the surface of the earth. And uh, the Good Samaritan comes along and raises him up and fixes him up and sends him back on his way. Uh, that's the idea. So I'm going to read through it, pick out some key things. And yeah, my main thesis is this, that this story has a double meaning. It does talk about worldly kingdoms and how they are corrupt. But it also, when you look at it through a gospel lens with Christ being the righteous king, you can see how some of the messages, when done in the right way, are actually fair and good. And so it's kind of kind of powerful. It's a kind of powerful contrast. But ultimately, it is also a warning to the people saying, you know how, how it works. That, if, that you will get rewarded or punished depending on your behavior. You can see it in real life. And that's also what it's like in the kingdom of God. So ironically and strangely, Jesus uses this horrible Herod Archelaus from good 20 or so years before 
as an example, and also as a foil. And a foil is a bit like when you go to a jeweler's, they call that a foil, the, the kind of the black felt or velvet that you put diamonds on. Having that contrast makes the diamonds shine brighter and look sparklier. Okay, so we often find this in the scriptures where foil is used to highlight something else. And I think Herod is used as a foil to actually show just how righteous Jesus is in comparison to him. Last thing to say before we really do get into it is that the people wanted Jesus to go up to Jerusalem and to start an uprising, to kick the Romans out and to take over. And so I think this is why this is powerful, because this message given to a mixed group of people, some of whom were curious, some of whom were friendly to him, some of whom maybe have been watching to, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think this story is meant to dissuade them and to say, you're focusing on the wrong things. Be careful because look how earthly kings behave. But when the kingdom of God comes, it will also be better. So look forward to a different time. We might talk about that uh, sort of an eschatological perspective. In other words, the end of days, the eschatology, the end of days. Um, but anyway, okay, in verse 12, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So Herod the Great goes to Rome to get his kingship. And Herod Archelaus, his son, also goes to Rome because he wants to be the king. He doesn't have this. Now, his father has left him the title of king in his will, but it wasn't his father's title to give. It has to be given by the Roman uh, Roman emperor, Augustus in this case. So Herod literally gets on a boat, goes to, to Rome. Okay. Jesus is going to leave, but he will return. Okay. We might call that the parousia, the idea of the second coming, the parousia. Okay. Verse 13. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now, 10 is a really odd number. Um, it's not 12, so it's not the 12 disciples. And it's not seven, so it's not a perfect number. It's not three, so it's not like, you know, the three two witnesses or the God. These numbers are all a bit random. And I think that's just because it's just a worldly number of people. And what Herod Archelaus did is he left the governance of the kingdom with his brother Philippus, who was a just and generally decent chap. Um, all, you know, all things considered, but he left his money and monetary affairs with those in the treasury who had been his father's servants and people who he could trust. So he does give his, his money to be looked after by some of these people. Um, when it says occupied till I come, the, the Greek there really is to do business or to trade. Okay, it really means like to, to make to make business or trade here. And when it says pounds, this is um, a, a minas, um, which is like a hundred denarii. Okay, so it's the equivalent of a hundred denarii. It's, it's a it's a Greek amount. It's a Greek word, which is interesting. So again, I think there's this kind of worldly message. It's a worldly coin. It's got worldly faces on it. So I think this really does compared to Matthew twenty five, which is lumps of silver or ore. This is quite different. And um, 100 denarii, it's, a, it's 100 days work. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. Now, again, you compare it to Matthew 25, where they get given um, five talents. That's like any, the amount of talents given out altogether was anything from 15 years work to 100 years work, depending on how you calculate it. 
I've estimated it as being um, 25 years or so. If you take a talent to be a 40 to 50 kilogram lump of silver and what that was worth at the time, um, it works out at, yeah, all the talents given out was 25 years work at least. In other words, a lifetime of work in those days. Um, So he gives them a, a very small amount of money, just a little bit compared to the talents, which which was literally the entire estate. He says he, in, in Matthew 25, it says, you know, and the master gave his goods, like as in all of his goods. He gave him, he gave his people everything to look after. Whereas here, the king's given him a little bit and he'll come back. Now, verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, for Herod, there's two, two things happened. One is that um, the will had been contested. They said, they all, all the brothers said, man, Herod I was bonkers. He clearly didn't know what he was doing. They all thought they deserved more. Okay, even Herod Archelaus, who got the, the best and the biggest amount, thought he deserved better. The other brothers similarly thought likewise. And so um, actually getting into a boat the same day to follow uh, Archelaus to Rome was his brother uh, Antipas or Antipater or Antipater. Um, so he actually goes off to Rome to try and cut him off and say, look, Herod Archelaus is a, is a bit of an idiot. Don't give him the kingship. We sh- you should give it to me instead. And because my dad was bonkers, you shouldn't respect his will and therefore you should change up and give me more stuff. Um, Herod had, for example, uh, on a feast day in Jerusalem, There'd been a bit of an uprising because, of course, the Jews don't want to be didn't want to be ruled by Herod. You know, he wasn't a, he wasn't a proper Jew, so to speak, because of his, his lineage. Um, you know, there's all this kind of stuff going on. And so a mounted guard had trampled down like three thousand Jews. And then there'd been some other uprisings. Some youths had been, I think, they defaced a bit of property and he'd had them executed and a couple of teachers and things. Basically, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. And so people hated him. Now, in addition to his brother going to Rome to say enough of this, because, you know, he's a, he's a bad guy and he's not fit to be king over Jerusalem. Um, also, 50 Jewish delegates uh, went to Rome on a boat as well to also argue that he was a terrible king and that he would not make the area safe. And of course, Augustus was really interested in making the empire safe. So if you've ever heard of the Pax Romani, which in other words, the peace of Rome, the idea that the empire is supposed to be a place of safety and peace instead of all this constant fighting. And so they, their argument was, he's not making it safe. So they, by the way, they were successful. He got given the title of Ethnarch, which is a little bit of a nod to him, you know, so kind of... Um, Augustus, I guess, because, you know, he liked Herod the first. They got on very well. Herod used to bring him lots of bribes, I mean, um, gifts. And uh, so I guess he kind of just respected the will. And he gave a little bit of a nod to Herod because he was, you know, threw himself before his feet, threw himself on the ground, prostrate. And um, basically Augustus kind of gave in. But he didn't give him the title of king. And like I say, 10 years later, uh, deposed, sent Gaul uh, to Vienne in France. Um, So he never really became king. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, has gone away. He's given the people around him a little bit. 
because this is a mixed multitude. This is not the select. This is not the call. This is just random people who have just wandered off the street. Some of them. He's saying, look, you've had a little bit of knowledge. You've had some. You've had some. You know, hundred days work is still a lot of money for you people who are living in poverty. Or in other words, spiritually, I'm giving you a little bit of something here. This is what you can cope with at this point. And you're all kind of getting the same message. I'm just kind of putting it out there for you. Okay. Um, and the citizens hated him. We, we know that from uh, John 1.11. It says, and Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Okay. So. Verse 15 then says, and it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom. So Herod still gets to keep the kingdom. He still received the kingdom, but he's not the king. Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So, of course, Herod calls back and says, all right, I've been gone a while. What's what's been going on? And Jesus, of course, will return and will expect us to give an account of what we've done while he's gone with that little bit that he's given us, okay? Even if it's people that haven't got the full knowledge of the gospel, they've been given a little bit. They've been given some moral guidance. We'll have a conscience. We'll have the light of Christ within us. We will have enough to get going and to make some better choices. And Jesus wants to know what we're going to do with that. And it's clear, by the way, much more clear than in Matthew 25. It's much more clear in this, in this version that they were told to do business, okay? They were told to go and do business and trade. So that's important because in a minute, one of these people is going to say, oh, well, it wasn't fair. But they were they were given an order. They were given a commandment. They were told what to do. Verse 16, then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well done, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little. And it is very little. It's only 100 days work. They have thou authority over 10 cities. So, again, this is interesting because the idea is that 10 cities, these are worldly things, you know, uh, these are worldly blessings, so to speak. Um, and, of course, when Jesus comes back, you know, he, he will take people who have done good with a very little and he will bless them much more than that little bit of, you know, that, that 10, you know, he's had one pound, he's got 10 pounds, right? So Jesus will give him much more than really they actually earned, so to speak, but still, um, whatever. It's still a big amount and it's cities. Whereas again, in Matthew 25, they get, they get a completely different reward and they all get the same reward. And we'll talk about that in a second. And he said unto, uh, sorry, and the second came in verse 18 saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said unto him, likewise, be like, be, and he said likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. So again, he gets a reward in, in proportion to the effort he's put in with the very little he's been given. And it's still much more than he deserves, in a sense. Now, what I'm going to say is that in Matthew 25, they are given a different amount to start with. And they're given different amounts, but they're given a large amount. Even one talent was an awful lot of money. That was a huge amount of money. Uh, so when people say, oh, well, he only had one talent. That's not fair. It's like, well, what if I gave you you know, a million pounds, would you say, well, that's not fair? Or I can't do anything with that? Or would you say that's a million pounds? And that's what the talent was kind of like. Okay, not quite the equivalent of that much, but you get what I'm saying. Whereas 100 days work, yeah, it's not a small amount of money, but it's not exactly loads. So um, the reason why it's different is because of whom 
Jesus was talking to. And I'll come on to that in a minute. Another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have laid up in a napkin. And effectively, he's buried it. He's hidden it. He's not wanted to, to do anything with it. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Uh, really, it was kind of a hard man. I like hard leather, right? Inflexible, he's saying. Thou takest up that thou laidst not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, verse 22, out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, wherefore then gavest thou not my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required my own with usury. So a couple of words to unpack here. First of all, bank, the re, we get the word bank in terms of bank of chairs or bank of seats from this Greek word bankum, this concept of the money lenders or the, the people that did banking sitting on benches at tables. And so literally, he says, you could have given it to the people in the, in the bank. Although it doesn't say literally gave, it says more like you could have thrown it at them. You could have just chucked it on the table and then I at least would have got it back with usury. Usury is taken on negative connotations since the Middle Ages. But in, in the Greek, it simply means with interest or with profit. So he's saying that even if you didn't want to trade and do the effort and the hard work and work for me, you could have chucked it in um, the bank. Just chuck it in there. Do nothing else. And you still could have come back and said, hey, look what I've got for you. And you couldn't even be bothered to do that. So that's quite damning. Also, he says he, he used the man's words against him because he's like, oh, well, you know, you, you know, you reap what you don't sow. And he's like, but you knew that because I was away. Like you knew that I wasn't going to be the one planting the, the seeds in the field, so to speak. I gave you the money to do that yourself. So it's like surprise. You know, you, you're telling me, yes, we know this because I gave the order and then I left. So you're not telling me something I don't know here. Like, I know that I'm not the one who planted the seed at this point. That was your job. And the seed thing is interesting because typically what would happen is that the money that's put into a bank even or would be used to um, buy seeds or used for trade and other things as well. But it would be used to invest in farming. So that goes back to the idea of the sower, the power of the sower. And we being the sowers on the Lord's behalf at this time, well, he's not on the earth. and there were within the Roman Empire at this time, the Phoenicians were the bankers and the traders. They had a whole network so they had a, they had a monopoly on it. So it really was possible to trade or to bank and to make money and literally to plant seeds and sow and then reap that. And the fact that this person hasn't is really there is no excuse because he was given the means to do it, even if it was a very small amount of money. He could have done something, as proven by the other two that did something and got their money back. So there are two witnesses against him to say, actually, what you're saying is not true. He's blaming the master for his own um, lack of desire, hiding it away. I don't want to have to do it. I don't want to use what I've been given. I think there's quite a strong message there about using what we've been given and not being ashamed of it or afraid of it or. Uh, thinking if I just bury it, it's fine. Interestingly, in Matthew 25, the, the man does bury it. He does bury his talent. And in Jewish rabbinical law, that was perfectly legal. Actually, it's, it's seen as the best way to keep hold of your money was to bury it. And that way, that would keep it safe. 
and that way it can be used for some nefarious purpose. So the problem is in Matthew 25, and I guess also here because he has effectively buried it in a napkin, he's covered it up, he's hidden it. Um, what he's trying to say is I'm innocent by, by the law. The law finds me innocent. But what Jesus is saying, don't use the law to try and get out of doing the things that you should do. Okay? Don't try and use these laws or these, these teachings that have come into law that aren't actually solid gospel teachings. Don't try and use them as excuses. And again, that's a powerful message for our day. Just because it might be legal doesn't mean it's right. So something something important there that we have to learn. So in verse 24, it says, take from him the pound and give it to him that has 10 pounds. I mean, this guy doesn't just have 10 pounds. He has 10 cities now. But he doesn't say give, give it to the guy who's got 10 cities. He focuses on give the bit that you had to the person who, who's done something with what he had. So the outcome is less important than the effort. The man is rewarded uh, with the 10 pounds and the 10 cities, not because he had 10 cities, but because he did something with the money he had at the start. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. Verse 26, and Jesus says, For I say unto you, Don't everyone which hath shall be given, and, none, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. Now, again, I want to just draw up a, a kind of do a bit of an analysis of all of this last little bit. Um, we've been told to get to work by the Lord. Uh, in many respects, we've all been given a little bit of information and knowledge. We could argue in Matthew 25, we've been given everything by the Lord, all the priesthood keys and revelation, all the things that are necessary, everything the Lord had on this earth, he left. He left it all with his people. But on the other hand, Everybody has been given a little bit of good, a little bit of knowledge. Everybody has life Christ. So because this is a different group of people from the Matthew 25 parable, which sounds very similar, they have a different amount they get given, but also the reward is different. And they they are blessed when they do good things with it. And in the kingdom of God, those who try harder and put the, the effort in will be blessed when the master returns. And the cities represent the idea of... Um, gaining authority and dominions and powers and that kind of thing in the, in the life to come and also this idea that if you don't use it you will lose it you know if you it, it'll be taken from you if you don't if you, if you don't have it ironically you know because you haven't used it it'll be taken from you now on the other hand you can also see this as a parable that teaches us about the way the world works because jesus is righteous in his judgment and he's saying it's like if you don't use spiritual things you will lose them it's just it's the, the way of the worst the way of the, the spiritual world but the way the, the, the worldly world, the physical world, so to speak, is that the king is unfair in a sense because, because Herod didn't give people true opportunities always. And often the people that did well and that were able to do well were people that were already doing well in the first place. In other words, the rich just got richer and the poor just got poorer. And so there is a sense where um, if they were looking at Herod, he comes back and he is expecting things from people without necessarily giving everyone the chance, even if you could argue they all got the same amount of money. So there's something there about saying that in the world today, people that don't have a lot get taken from them by the rich, and the rich just get richer. And that's a statement about the time as well as now. So a lot of people listening to this parable would have understood this as being, look, worldly kingdoms are pretty messed up and corrupt. You know that. You are sitting in Jericho. You can see the Winter Palace. That would still have been standing at that point. Gets burnt down later. But anyway, uh, it was an earthquake. 
there's a lot of earthquakes and burnings down and there's a lot of buildings left because of those two things but anyway the winter palace is later destroyed so you can see the winter palace you can see the worldly world you can see zacchaeus collecting money and taxes you can see the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer but in the kingdom of heaven those who get richer actually it is because you've worked hard and for not for another reason you know it's just and so this acts as a foil where jesus then is the righteous king where similar things happen but for the right reasons and with the right help the and, and herod obviously does things for the wrong reasons the wrong way um, but there is a certain amount of you're going to get asked to give an account so you better be ready one way or another you know render unto caesar what is caesar's kind of thing just to take it then to 25 i want to talk about the parable within the parable just for two minutes just the just as we approach the half an hour mark um jesus gives the people in jericho a little bit they don't have all the keys of the kingdom they don't have all the revelation and the priesthood and the ordinances and the covenants and the experience on of uh, transfiguration and all those kind of amazing things they don't have that they've been given a pound they've been given a lot and, and it's, it's valuable you know that's three or four months work but ultimately that will keep them going so long they have to do something with it in other words follow jesus and become a true disciple if they want to really step it up matthew 25 is a different scenario jesus has now gone up to jerusalem he is sitting and he's teaching the disciples specifically specifically and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven that's coming and uh and, and shortly after this then he's anointed he has the Passover and institutes the sacrament, suffers in Gethsemane, betrayed, uh, dies on the cross, and then is resurrected. So this is like one of the very last things that is being taught. And so in Matthew 25, we have, first of all, the parable of the virgins. And you have to understand it in that context. That It says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto the uh likened unto 10 virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom so jesus is specifically saying about the time to come the eschatological end of days the time to come and in verse 14 or verse 13 it says watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour when the son of man cometh and then in verse 14 it says for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling in a far country so it immediately launches into this next parable but you might think this is a separate parable in a sense, and it is because it involves some different characters. But if you notice in the King James Version where it says for the kingdom of heaven is, that isn't in the Greek. OK, anything in italics in the King James Version has been put in by editors for ease of reading, because the Greek, when it says for it is as, refers back to what? Verse one the kingdom of heaven but you know it says the kingdom of heaven is like unto the ten virgins so what it's doing is it's saying what we've just said is cool and let me tell you something else about it it's immediately directly relevant and it talks about the the man who has his own servants people he knows okay his own servants interestingly and if you have a look in luke uh luke 19 um then what you get is slightly different, slightly different version where it says uh, he called his ten servants, and I think that his own 
and in the Greek, it, it does have a word that means his his own, like his very own. These aren't just random people that work for him, like Herod's people, right? Or or people that are kind of there and following Jesus, but they're not really like the disciples. These are his own servants. And he delivered unto them his goods. In other words, all of them. And so the thing is, Luke is about random folk who are getting a bit of the gospel and will be blessed if they do something with it massively. And it's down in Jericho, which symbolically is deep in the earth, Sheol, the underworld, death, um, the worldly plane, versus Matthew, which is up in Jerusalem in private with his disciples, his own servants, and he's given them everything. Like they are getting everything. And, of course, some people, some of his disciples would have had the ability to do more. Peter becomes the chief apostle. We have Peter, James and John. They get a bit more. They get the keys of the kingdom. Others get less. And some go and bury it in the ground like Judas. They take the thing they had and rather than, you know, running with it and really making something of it, they just hide it. And they don't do something with their faith, that knowledge, that that the skills, their time, the talents, the, the resources that they've been given. And what's also different is rather than just getting something like a city, good as that is, in verse 21 of Matthew 25, what we have is it says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So you emphasize that they are servants. Now, in, in olden times, they were bond servants. OK, and that meant that they weren't it's not slaves in the modern sense, but they were also indebted in some way to the master. They could work themselves free. Um, they could be granted that freedom if they were particularly loyal, uh, if the master was so willing. But the idea is that they are servants. Okay, they are indebted. They are they are, they are obliged. Okay, just that we all are because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We are all obliged. But he says that has been faithful over a few things. I mean, talents are not a few things. That's a lot of money. I will make the ruler. Actually, it says I will set the over. I will set the over in the Greek. Over many things, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. To enter into the joy of the Lord means to be raised up in status. In other words, they are no longer servants in that sense. They're no longer um, employees. They become raised up to a, a level, a much higher level. And the Lord says, you know, I, I will, you know um, revelations, um, he overcomes um will inherit all things right i will be his god and he should be my son so heavenly father and jesus christ want to give us everything they have all the knowledge the priest of power their ability they want to help us continue our spiritual journey onwards to achieve what they have achieved and that's what he's saying is enter thou into the joy of my lord so here's where it gets a bit like meta right this is where Literally, in these both these parables, even if one is kind of a comparison between Herod and Jesus, and the other one is really the kingdom of heaven, uh, fully for the disciples and their role in it. What Jesus is saying is, those people down in Jericho, they got some in information, and some of them will do something with it and do well and good for them. But you're my disciples, and you're getting everything, and you need to do something with it and then you will not just do well but you will do really well you'll you have received the greater amount okay you've received the five talents 
And the irony is that if you do well with your five talents, and even if you just double it like the two talents, you will get the same reward, which is eternal life. Because, you know, what's what's infinity times 10 or five or two? It's still the same reward because it's a certain level that you achieve. And it's about the effort we make with what we've been given. So I think it's pretty meta because the parable literally exists in the real life because Jesus just gave some people a bit less and he's just given these guys a bit more. And so I think it's a beautiful bridge between those two parables, which are happening at geographically distant places, um, altitudinally distant places. One is heaven, one is hell, so to speak. And spiritually uh, different places uh, or different abilities. And yeah, some people get a bit confused about the idea of like, you know, the final result for them. Matthew 25, they get told to cast the servant into outer darkness. Now in, in LDS theology, outer darkness is a, has a different connotation really if you read it in the greek it says into the darkness which is outside physically and also spiritually of course but in other words here's the city we're in the city okay and some of these people back in luke were given cities so to speak uh, they are full of light and lights and people that aren't um, loyal to the ruler will be told you can leave there's the door and, of course, out in the wilderness, it's dark. No streetlights in those days. Okay? So, and like the foolish virgins, if you're shut out and you haven't got oil in your lamp, you're going to be in darkness spiritually. So that links back to the virgin story as well. And, of course, in Luke, it's a bit harsh because it says, you know, bring my enemies before me, which has got really nothing to do with the talents, right? And, and, and slay them before me. It's like, wow, that's harsh. I think that's, A, that's Herod, which is what he did. I mean, one of the things he did straight away was get rid of Joazar, the high priest, and replace him with his more loyal brother, um, Eleazar. So, you know, Herod immediately comes back with his new, um, not quite crown on, but his new pointy hat on and says, right, I've been given approval. Now I can really get to work. And I think he does go around killing people and slaying people. I think what Jesus is trying to say, then, using it as a foil in the righteous kingdom of God is, those who are not loyal or righteous will die spiritually, just as the Good Samaritan goes down to Jericho from Jerusalem and he falls to so spiritually separated from God, from the holy city. And then he, he's set about by robbers. So then he sins. OK, he's wounded. And the Samaritan binds up his sins with oil and blood, uh, with wine, sorry, which represents blood and oil is the anointing. So, again, he he raises that the, the, the man who has been beaten up. He raises him back up and gives him his status back, which is exactly what happens in Matthew 25. They get given the status of no longer being a servant. So I think it sounds harsh in Luke, but it's because it's using it as a foil and because it's trying to send a very clear message that there will be a day of reckoning. You need to be ready. OK, that's it. I mean, I say that's it. There is actually quite a lot more, but that will do, I think, for now that we have got to use what we've been given. However small we might think it is, it is still not insignificant. We've all been given the opportunity to bless the lives of other people. As we do that, we will be blessed because you cannot serve your fellow beings without serving God, as we learn in the Book of Mormon. And um, that's a great privilege. That's a great privilege. So please go out, do some good. Even those that feel they can't do a lot of good in a church sense or at the minute, keep working on it because you can. But even just doing good in your own community and using the talents you've got for not overtly religious 
purposes is still a good thing that is uh, condoned and allowed and encouraged by the Lord. That's the bank, so to speak. But if you can trade it, learn it, grow, you know, trade with other people, knowledge and skills and come back and be even more profitable by bringing more souls into the kingdom. And, uh, and I think that's a great message. All right. That'll do for now. Take it easy and um, hopefully see you soon. Bye. Thank you.